Good morning again. It's so good to see you, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel in the fourth chapter. And I'm going to be reading from verses 27 to 45. Actually, what I'm doing is returning to the text, to the chapter I left off with, but I've been gone the last couple weeks, so it's been three weeks since we were in the first part of John 4, um, but we'll be refreshed um, in what that said. Let's pick this up, verse 27. The woman at the well has heard from Jesus. They've had this conversation. And Jesus has just declared to her in verse 26, amazingly, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Savior sent by God. Verse 27 says, just then, his disciples came back And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, you know, what do you seek, a woman? Or why are you talking with her, you know, Jesus? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. As you know, a lot of it wasn't very good, right? She feels no shame. He knows everything about her. And she asked, can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say... There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Well, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you did not labor. Others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And after the two days, he departed for Galilee, where Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Uh, They too had gone to the feast. Let's pray together. Father and heaven on this Pentecost Sunday when we remember how your Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples and the apostles just 120 we're reminded uh, of the power that is available 
to us, that is actually in us to testify of Jesus Christ. Now as you look at this passage, we ask you to apply its truths to our lives also and to help us work out in our own hearts and minds afresh and in our own consciences and resolve afresh our determination also to live as witnesses for Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said before I read this passage, um, we looked at the first part of it three weeks ago, and we were looking at uh, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Well, this part of the passage, the second major part of the passage, is the counterpart to the first part of the passage. Uh, this is Jesus' conversation with his disciples at the well. And his, his message to them was as much a life-altering revelation as his message had been to the woman at the well. The difference, of course, was the disciples were already disciples, right? They were already followers of Christ. The woman was not. Yet he had a revelation for them, for his disciples. And I want us to focus on it today because for those of us, and most of us here are Christians, that revelation really is for, for us. And what Jesus was revealing was a new and an immediate possibility of life or for life with God. That's what he was Revealing to them. He was calling the Samaritan woman to accept him as her savior. He was calling on the Samaritan woman, in essence, to become a disciple. Well, Jesus' disciples were already disciples, but he was calling them also to something beyond their understanding of him, beyond their understanding of God. He was calling them not just to be with him, but to be like him in his life purpose, in his work, because his work was God's work. My food, he says to his disciples, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, to accomplish his work. This was the great thing that God was doing in the world. Bringing people to the Savior was his work. And I want to say that it, was the, it is the one thing above all other things that Jesus gave himself to because it is the one thing above all other things that God gives himself to and it's the one thing above all other things that he calls us to. Jesus cast this work in terms of a harvest, didn't he? The prophets of old, of old, had used this image of a harvest to speak of God's very rich blessings in the coming age, in the age to come, in the age of the Messiah. Amos had written, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who's planting the grape seeds. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will, will flow with it. Long seasons, those long, long seasons of uncertainty and of painful toil between the time the soil was plowed and then, and then planted and then, and then cultivated and then 
harvest, those long, uncertain, toilsome seasons would be over. There would be abundance without the curse. And that's exactly what Amos was prophesying. Harvest, and you can imagine, in an agrarian economy where people rely on their being able to harvest. Harvest was a symbol of God's blessing. And so it was a symbol of God's blessing the prophets used for when Messiah would come. And Jesus, in his first coming, in this age, was teaching that this prophetic image, this this prophetic word was actually being fulfilled now. It's being fulfilled, fulfilled today. But it isn't being fulfilled in the gathering of fruits and nuts and vegetables, but in the gathering of souls for eternal life. This is the great thing that God is doing. This is an amazing blessing that's been unleashed on the world. This is a sign of the presence of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus applied the joy and the satisfaction of the plowman or the reaper or the sower or the treader to those who join him, who join him in bringing others to himself to receive the salvation that Jesus came to accomplish. That's what he's doing. He's saying there's joy of the faithful harvester, the faithful plowman who looks to the harvest. This promised joy is now for my disciples as they enter into the work that I'm doing, which is the work that God is doing, bringing others to salvation. Well, that day... At that well, this is what I want you to think about. That day at that well, this possibility of this experience was as far removed from the thoughts of the disciples as eternal life was removed from the thoughts of the woman at the well because they were both missing out on something extraordinarily vital, something rich, something that God had for them, that he had for them. I don't know how you think about testifying of Christ or living as a witness for Christ. You think that's a work that God wants you to do, but you're reluctant to do because it's work and it's hard? It's a blessing from God that we can testify of Christ, that we can actually taste and, and uh, be part of the harvest that God himself is so dedicated and devoted to. He had something for them. And so to make this point, For Jesus to make this point, he speaks to the woman about water better than any water that she had ever tasted or would ever taste. And he speaks to his disciples about food, food that is more satisfying than any food they had ever eaten or would ever eat in this earth. He was speaking, he was speaking about the grace of the harvest both to the woman, the one being harvested, if you don't mind that, put it that way, and to the disciples as the harvesters. That's what he's talking about. Grace. Grace. Now we read the story of this woman, and we read about how earthbound she really is. 
You remember that from a couple weeks ago. And we shouldn't be surprised. She's not a follower of Jesus. She couldn't begin to grasp, of course, the spiritual reality that Jesus is describing. So when he spoke about the living water earlier in the chapter, John 4, verse 11, if you knew who I was and what I had for you, you'd ask me, I'd give you living water, very different from this water in the well. She responds, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and this well is deep. So she thinks that when Jesus says water, he means water, (laughs) earthly water, material water, physical water. But here, here is the shocking thing to me about the parallel that John clearly intends for us to see in this passage. That the disciples are just as earthbound as the woman. When it comes to understanding what it is to be a witness for Christ. When they say, Jesus, Rabbi, they say to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Isn't that amazing statement? You don't know anything about it. People talk about, write about whether this is an implied rebuke or not, but um, I don't think that was good news. (laughs) He says, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And they began to talk to each other. They began to say this, just like that woman. Has anyone brought them something to eat? They hear food and they think food. Just like the woman hears water, she thinks water. And honestly, there is earthbound in their perspective as a woman at the well does. And as much as the, as much as the woman lacks life-giving water, the disciples lack this life-sustaining food. And Jesus is the source of both. The water, of course, is a symbol of life for God. It comes from God. It is as, this water, eternal life, life with God, relationship and fellowship with God, is as independent of our mortal biology as the water Jesus was promising was independent of the water in that well. It is not of this earth. And I'm going to say to those of you who are not Christians, who are really thinking about Christ, and that's why you're here, we talk about eternal life. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about a living and true fellowship with God that lasts forever, that is completely independent of your physical mortality. You will die. I will die. We all will die. But the fact that we're going to die does not change the fact that when Christ saves us, when we trust him as our Savior, death might be a big deal to us, our dying, but it's no big deal to Christ. He's greater than death, and he will receive you in death so that you are with God forever and ever. That's a good news. And to that end, he died for your sins. He really died for all that would make you unacceptable to God. He took it all. He took it all. Well, food's no no less a symbol than for life with God either. It's the meat of our relationship with God as we join him in his work of bringing salvation to the world. That's what it is. Now, this may all sound very vague and theoretical, and I understand that. And if it it does sound vague and theoretical, we're missing the point, 
and I really haven't done my job because Jesus is being very, very concrete here. He is speaking of what is actually taking place, what is actually happening in his disciples' lives and in the life of the Samaritans at that, at that very moment. And so he's speaking about what is happening around you and around me all the time. This is happening around us. In verses 27 to 30, Jesus' disciples got to tell the story here to make this point. In verses 27 to 30, Jesus' disciples return while he's still speaking with a woman. They've gone off to bring him food, and now they've come back with that food. And the text says of the disciples that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, why do you seek, what do you seek, woman? Or, or why, who are you, why are you talking with her, Jesus? They, they didn't. But, you know, this clearly was on their mind. That's why John records it. When the text says that the disciples marveled, um, it can be probably better uh, translated that the disciples were astonished. That's really the sense of it. And when you're astonished by something, there's, you, know, you can be good astonished or you can be bad astonished, right? And the idea behind this term is not that it's all positive. The idea is, is that, whoa, wait a minute. Little whoa, wait a minute. It raises questions. And that's exactly what the term means in this context, very clearly. And those questions were on the disciples' mind. What do you want from him? Why are you talking to her? But they didn't ask. They didn't ask. They didn't challenge Jesus openly. They would not do that. But they wanted, and this is important, they wanted no part of his conversation with the woman. But that is exactly what Jesus wanted them to be part of. That's exactly what he wanted them to be part of. Their hesitation, their reluctance to engage with others was what must be overcome in the disciples' life in order to enter into the work that God was doing. Amazingly, the woman goes into townspeople. She testifies of Jesus as best she can. She says, come, see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She's actually posing the question to them. <laughs> you know, she's, she really is quite a remarkably transformed person. And verse 30 says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. That's what introduces our, our key part of our passage today. And then after Jesus talks with his disciples, you come off the end of it, you come back into that broader situation. Verse 40 says, so when they came to him. So it, the passage is, the prelude to the passage is introduced by they went out of the town and were coming to him. And then you have this discussion with the disciples immediately followed by, so when they came to him. Now, why do I stress this? I stress this for a simple reason. That when Jesus says to his disciples, behold, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He is drawing their attention to the Samaritans who are coming to him. That's what he's talking about. He's drawing their attention to the Samaritans. He is not referring to some unnamed field of corn or wheat beyond the picture that John has drawn for us in this chapter. He's referring to what is in the picture. He's referring to those people. And he wants his disciples to see what God is doing at that moment, at that place, with those people. 
because he wants them to be part of it. And so he speaks in terms of harvest, which are eschatological terms, prophetic terms, and also terms that would resonate, be very heart-known heart and heartfelt to those who lived as farmers. He wants them to be part of it. And when Jesus says this, when he says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He again, he is talking about the Samaritans. And he doesn't say this. He doesn't talk about, you know, you have, you're entering into where others labored. He's not talking about this to fuel speculation. John didn't write this to fuel my speculation or your speculation as to who those earlier laborers were. Whether John the Baptist, because he'd been up there, or whether Jesus himself, or whether, you know, the testimony of the prophets, even in the, um, even though the Samaritans didn't officially accept the prophets, he doesn't say this to fuel speculation. He says this in order that they would accept the truth that God is constantly at work for the salvation of other people. Constantly. In ways we cannot see. In ways we cannot know. In ways that in families go back generations and have residual effect. He is constantly at work by his spirit and by his providence. We cannot see it in the moment. But it is true and it is constant. He says this, so they accept this truth. So they accept it. And he nails this, actually, in the next chapter, John 5, verse 17, when he says, my father is working until now. Happened to be a Sabbath. My father is working until now, and I am working. I ask, can you say that? Is that the testimony of your heart? Is that the way you see reality in the life with God? My father is working until now, and I am working also. Do you understand the synergy, the communion of your faithful testimony with what God is doing in the world? That's really what this is about. And why is it so critical for us to see this? Why is it so critical for us to understand this? So that when we have opportunity for conversation with other people about Christ. We understand that we are actually entering into work that God is already doing. We are not arriving ahead of the Lord. We're adding to groundwork that has already been laid. We really are. And as Paul said, we are co-laboring with him. And if we're not convinced of that, we will not take those opportunities. We don't. We just won't do it. You know, we might trust Christ to save us, and yet at the same time fail to trust that Christ is saving others, and fail to trust that Christ uses us to save others. It's a, it's a mixed bag that shouldn't be there. It's very incongruous with the gospel. Because the gospel, honestly, folks, what is the gospel? It's not only that Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead, he also ascended on high, and what does he pour out? His Holy Spirit. The early church celebrated 
They celebrated Pentecost as much as they celebrated Easter because they understood the impact and the implications of the gospel for their own lives as disciples, as disciples entering into the work that God was already doing. Well, see, if we don't understand that and we don't embrace that spiritually, and let me say, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm calling you to trust that. I'm calling you to faith in Christ that that is true. Just as much as I call you who are not Christians here to faith in Christ to save your soul. I'm calling those of you in whom he's done that work of grace to understand that work of grace is not complete. I mean, his is, but I mean, our reception of it is not. Our understanding of it is not. Our grasp of the reality of salvation is not. Until we give expression of that to others. It just isn't. And understand what God did in our lives. Who here said, I came to Christ on my own? Nobody. Who says here, I came to Christ because of Lynn? Uh, they don't say that. They say, I came to Christ because God called me to himself. He used Lynn, he used other people, but he, I came to it because of that. It's true of other people. You're not unique in that. You're not singled out to the exclusion of others in that. When we look at the world, this is the way we're supposed to see the world. This is the way we see the world through the eyes of Jesus Christ. But when we don't, we hold back. An opportunity comes. We say nothing. In fact, we're a bit relieved when the moment passes, even though we feel a bit sheepish and guilty about it. That's the alternatives for the disciples. That's the alternatives. That's exactly what the disciples did at the well when the woman was there. And Jesus is calling them out of that. He's saying, no, no. They say, eat. He says, I've got food you don't know anything about. It's doing God's will in this place, in this moment. With this woman. And I have pled myself, and you probably pleaded this as well. When you're not, ha when you're not sharing Christ with others, and, and, and I don't mean delivering a tract. I'm not talking about giving a sales pitch. I'm saying when you're having conversations with others and you're not bringing Christ into those conversations, we're a very natural, normal thing to do. If you're like me, you may not be, but you have come to those points where you said, well, you know, the problem is I've been a Christian so long that I don't know any non-Christians. I don't know any unbelievers. Let me tell you, honestly, beginning with myself, Christ makes it very clear to me. It is not for lack of opportunity that I do not speak of Christ to others. He absolutely rules that out. And I have to see it in my own life as an excuse because if I don't call it what it is and recognize it for what it is, I hide behind it. So I'm just speaking sinner to sinner. I'm speaking believer to believer. I breathe your air. I drink your water. We eat the same food. We share the same life. 
This is reality. And Jesus is calling all of us out into something greater. If we don't speak, we're responding to those opportunities like the disciples in our passage. We avert our gaze. We lower our eyes. But Jesus says to you and to me this morning, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see and see. And isn't it true that we easily think just like those disciples did? Very practical, very down to earth here. We think just like they did. This is not the place for that conversation. We're in Samaria after all. This is not the time for that conversation. It's lunchtime. This is not the person to have that conversation with. Wrong race, wrong gender, bad past, different language. Our expectations are low when our inhibitions are high. Inhibitions beginning with our prejudices about other people. And when our expectations are low, you know this as well as I do, that when our expectations are low, our resolve actually goes negative. Doesn't fall to zero, it goes negative. We deny ourselves conversations with others. We avoid conversations with others, though we sense an opportunity could be there. That's not the Christian disciple that Christ is looking for. That's not disciple, that's not maturing in our discipleship. You think back with me for a moment to the woman at the well. She's so eager to return to her village that she leaves her water jug behind. And she rushes to the people who shun her. And she's not the least concerned about her shame or their ridicule. And why is that? The answer is because Jesus in his greatness as the Savior of the world has entered her life. And that is more than enough to overcome all her earthbound inhibitions. That's why. And is he not great enough? Is he not present enough? To do the same, to have the same effect on us. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Yes. And that means also it is the power of God to transform a disciple from being a reluctant and withdrawn observer to being an actively engaged worker in the work that God is doing. And Jesus' assurance to you in the midst of this is not, hear me please, his assurance is not that if you only share the gospel, crowds will come to you. That's not what this passage is teaching. Not at all. What Jesus is teaching is that when you lift up your eyes and you trust God to use you specifically in the lives of others he's put on your path or whose path you've entered into and you engage them in conversation and you include and bring Christ in every instance, every single time, there is a sure and certain result and that is that God is extremely pleased 
that every time we lift our eyes to see people rather than barriers and take opportunities for those conversations with others rather than hide behind obstacles, God is pleased because we are looking at the world through Christ's eyes. And through God's Spirit, this is Pentecost after all, through God's Spirit, we experience His pleasure in us as the richest joy and satisfaction in Him. He's saying that when, Jesus is saying, when you enter into the work that God is doing, it is work, it's a lot of work, but guess what? There's going to be a nice ribeye steak on your plate every morning. You will taste food that you have never, or, all right, veggie burger, you will taste food <laughs> that you have never tasted before, that you did not think was even possible that God would have it for you and would give it to you. That's what happens as we enter into his pleasure and doing the work that he's doing, that he is doing, and all the glory for all that happens is whose? It's the Lord's from beginning to end. And isn't that why we're here? Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. And we do confess our joy in Christ as our Savior. He's our Savior and our Lord. He's uh, our teacher. He's our example. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He gives us the race to, walk, to run, which he himself ran. He lays before us the challenges that he himself has already met. These tests by which our faith is proven and purified and he is glorified and people do come to Christ because you're at work. Because you're at work. I pray you'd stir us up to look at the world beginning with our friends and our family those who are close within reach of us through the eyes of Jesus. But then also to look at the rest of the world, Father, those we would think uh, would never come to Christ, would be the least likely, would be the most hostile, that we would look to them through the eyes of Christ. Amen. Amen.